I speaking of uh, reading in a in a more devotional spirit by doing something like that. Uh, I think I may share something I heard yesterday from. I was speaking with Radhikaraman Prabhu, with whom I uh, do a lot of, uh, you can say, academic work and other things. And we were uh, discussing, um, I have to prepare a course uh, for uh, devotee scholars, postgraduate scholars, uh, who are with our Bhaktivedanta Research Center in Mumbai, affiliated with Mumbai University. So they've asked me to to prepare and deliver a course on research skills. So we were discussing about that, and I was remembering some advice that I received by one professor uh, when I was at Oxford about writing, and I mentioned that to Radhik Rahman. And then he shared something, what he remembered from the same professor, um, which really struck me because you know, this is an academic professor, but he's giving advice which was quite devotional uh, because Radhi Gurman said uh, it was in the very early days of his uh, work on his doctoral research. He was planning to uh, do something on G- uh, Srila Jiva, Jiva Goswami's Shatsandarva. Um, but he really didn't know what he wanted to do. So he went to this professor and to ask for advice how to how to approach and and the professor said, "Don't read as if you're bringing something to what you read. Just read Jiva Goswami, allow him to speak to you." Just allow him, just uh, just receive what he is saying. And gradually you'll get some idea of what, what you want to say. But first, let him speak. <laughs> and I thought that's very nice. Okay. Um, gosh, the time goes quickly when you're having a good time. Um, I want to share, I think I've already shown some time ago this book, a little small book of Kalakanta Prabhu called All That Lies Between, A Disciple's Appreciation of His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. And as I've explained, uh, Kalakanta Prabhu has a special talent with rhyming and uh, rhythmic poetry. He has done uh, a lot of this poetry, uh, taking Shastra and turning it into rhyming rhythmic English. But here is a poem of uh, six verses. Um addressing to 
and the second person addressing Śrīla Prabhupāda. So he says, I've, I've given a copy of this for, um, I don't know if Daityesha, if you received a um, copy of this for translating. No. I think Kavichandra did receive, I hope. I'll read slowly. Dear Śrīla Prabhupāda, because you chose to carry on Today I rose before the dawn. With beads in hand, I made my way to see Lord Krishna bow and pray. In Mayapur, this blessed place, Pujaris blew the conch today and pulled the curtains to the side. A thousand sets of Vaishnav eyes looked straight to Radha, dressed to please, and Madhav garland to his knees. Ten thousand Vaishnav fingertips flew up for them as Vaishnava lips sang out the sacred Vaishnav prayers as other Vaishnavs everywhere so gladly kept the same routine as you alone had once foreseen. How many lives have been restored with praise of Sri Vrindavan's Lord? How many cries of Nitai Gore in days to come, how many more? It's all the shadow of one man where scriptures urge the wise to stand. You kindly take and keep command of those who serve the best they can. So this is called the shadow of one man. So he's appreciating, you can say, the moment of going to Mangalarti uh, as being inspired by Śrīla Prabhupāda and how his inspiration is continuing for so many devotees. I like this uh, 10,000 Vaishnav fingertips flew up for them, as Vaishnav lips sang out the sacred Vaishnav prayers, as other Vaishnavs everywhere so gladly kept the same routine as you alone had once foreseen. <laughs> so, yeah, and, uh, and then he has a page of notes uh, that explain for those who are not familiar uh, with the tradition he's share, he's uh, explaining um, okay i i feel like i should also well that was a kind of sh show and tell but um, if you'll allow me i will share something more 
um, since, as you know, I've been writing this book, uh, Krishna's Wonderful Form, and just this last week I was able to finish uh, the second draft, and I have sent it to Devamrita Swami, uh, he is my coach, he's the one who requested me to write the book, but I've also sent it to um, to two devotees that I kind of selected, uh, asking them to also read the manuscript as if they are brand new devotees. Well, one of them is quite new. Uh, and and then to comment, uh, to critically comment um, from the perspective of a new person because the whole f- purpose of the book is to help new people to understand something about our um, our worship of Krishna, especially in the temple. So uh, this time I've made it online so you can see, and this may help translators. Uh, this is coming near the end. I've been explaining the arati ceremony, and I say... There are various opinions. What was this too? Uh, Rabindra asks, is there any further special meaning to each of the items offered in Arati? So I say, there are various opinions. Sometimes it's said that each item represents one of the cosmic elements, such as earth, represented by incense, fire, of course, represented by the lamp, water represented by the argya offering, and so on. Here the idea is that as Krishna is the source of all the things of this world, the pujari, on behalf of all who are attending the ceremony, devotionally offers all the different elements, essential substances of this world, back to him. But there is another understanding of the items, which I find appealing. This understanding is expressed in Sanskrit prayers that the pujari may quietly recite while offering each item. So, for example, when offering the lamp, he or she can recite this verse, svaprakasho mahateja sarvatas timirabhaha sabhahya bhyantara jyotir dipo yang O Lord, please accept this lamp of great effulgence, which lights both internally and externally, revealing everything clearly and destroying darkness everywhere. And then Angela says, it's beautiful, both the Sanskrit verse and the meaning. And the Swami says, yes. And similar verses express this idea for each item, calling attention to how those who offer them are spiritually elevated by making uh, the offerings. And then the next section, I'm 
explaining the four regular principles <laughs> for new people. So good luck. Um, so then Jake says, well, don't mind my stupid question, but does Krishna understand only Sanskrit? And the Swami smiles and says, it's not a stupid question. One might think Krishna understands only Sanskrit. Since the mantras, the prayers and incantations used in worship of Krishna are generally in Sanskrit. But no, Krishna understands all languages. It's said that he even understands the languages of all the non-human animals. After all, he is their creator. But traditionally, Sanskrit has been used as the preferred language for sacred literature in India. The term Sanskrit means literally refined. It is a very rich language, and although it's rarely used for ordinary conversation, there are quite many pundits in India who communicate with each other in Sanskrit, both in writing and at learned gatherings. And then Rabindra says, True, I have an uncle who has such friends. There are Sanskrit pundits who can talk and argue all day about fine points of Sanskrit grammar. The Swami says, yes, and that's what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was doing as a young man before he began his mission to spread Krishna Bhakti. As a teacher of Sanskrit grammar, he found it difficult to keep attention on his lessons as he became increasingly absorbed in thinking of and speaking about Krishna. His biographers report that eventually his students became impatient and even impudent as Mahaprabhu would infuse the lessons with talk of Krishna. Then, one day, a student criticized him for chanting repeatedly, Gopi, Gopi, in a mood of praising Krishna's consorts, the Vrindavan cowherdesses. One thing led to another, and all his students started making so much trouble for him that he decided to retire. <laughs> and then Rabindra says, as a young man, he retired? Retired is not the right word. He was only 24 years old, and he didn't just retire from his job. He decided it was time to take up the life of a renunciant, one who lives without family and with no connection to the opposite sex. He took what he could call, what you could call final vows as a sannyasi, a mendicant, and left home with the intention to walk to Vrindavan. Rabindra says, from Bengal to Vrindavan? That's hundreds of miles. Angela says, now Swami, you've made me interested in Sanskrit, but the verse you just recited has me wondering, are there special qualifications or special training needed to do all these services to Krishna in his murti form? So, of course, here I'm, this is the prompt that I'm inserting in order to get to the subject of regulative principles. The Swami says, yes and no. Essentially, there is only one qualification, one prerequisite, namely devotion, bhakti. 
But bhakti isn't something we just decide, decide one day, now I have devotion, now I have bhakti. Rather, we learn to cultivate bhakti. And one of the most important, if not the most important, ways to cultivate bhakti is by chanting or reciting Krishna's names, chanting the Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. We've already talked about this, but it bears emphasizing. Basically, because with this mantra we address Krishna directly, we thereby connect with him in a meditative way. By connecting with him, he responds. Because Krishna is present with us, accompanying us, and because he is the embodiment of all purity, as we call out to him, he purifies us, purifies our consciousness, our awareness. As our consciousness is purified from all the unfavorable impressions and misconceptions that tend to accumulate in the course of our daily lives, our innate devotional inclination is awakened. Uh, and Angela asks, is there a certain length or period of time for doing this chanting before you can do archana activities? Swami says, we like to do mantra meditation in the early morning, a time that is especially peaceful before the world wakes up. My teacher, Srila Prabhupada, advised us to keep a standard of daily chanting. Keeping count with these beads, of which there are 108 in the rosary, or mala, as we call it, we chant at least 16 rounds, times 108 of this mantra. It takes about two hours for most people. It doesn't all have to be in the morning, although if you follow the 16 rounds club, it should be. Uh, some devotees will chant, say, eight rounds in the early morning before going to work or school, then another four later in the day and another four in the evening. Angela. And after some time, one can engage in archana, doing the services to Krishna in his murti form. The Swami says, yes, the more formal archana is learned from a teacher, usually one's guru, directly, or possibly from an experienced devotee entrusted by one's guru to teach archana. But before the more formal practices, everyone is encouraged to arrange a sanctified place, an altar, in the home with pictures, photos of temple images, especially of Radha and Krishna, and of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his associates. There is more to explain about having a home altar for bhakti practice, but before that, I should explain about we call what we call the regulative principles of freedom. And then Jake, Jake is always kind of joking. He says, this sounds ominous. Ominous sounds means dark and scary. And uh, the Swami 
chuckles and says, in our fast and furious modern lives, we don't like the idea of regulation, do we? But we all like the idea of freedom. All good things come at a price. And yet, quote, the best things in life are free. So those who commit seriously to bhakti yoga practice feel willing and able to give up self-destructive habits that bind us to this dream world of selfishness and ignorance. Therefore, there are four kinds of anchors to self-realization from which we want to cut loose to really go for the goal. The first anchor has to do with our diet. As the saying goes, you are what you eat. We don't want to live on the flesh of other animals, and we find it quite unnecessary to do so. By avoiding meat eating, including fish and eggs, we can greatly foster our innate sense of compassion. The second anchor is also related to consumption. Bhakti practitioners avoid all kinds of intoxication altogether as we want to maintain a completely sober awareness of the world around us and the life within us. This helps us keep sharp focus on the goal, which is to experience the highly intoxicating, in a positive sense, taste of devotional relationships with Krishna and his devotees. This practice facilitates our innate capacity for austerity, which serves well to think more of others' welfare and, and needs. The third anchor or habit that we give up is gambling, or what in German language is called Glückspiel, literally playing with luck. Gambling feeds greed, and it is rooted in the hope to get something for nothing. At, to get something for nothing at others' expense. It also indulges an attraction to Lady Luck, the fickle embodiment of chance. Freedom from gambling tendencies allows us to hold firmly to truthfulness and thereby pursue realization of the enduring truths of who we are and who is God. And finally, those who commit themselves seriously to the practice of bhakti yoga are careful to respect sexual boundaries. What means sexual boundaries, you will surely ask. And Jake says, yes, I was going to ask. And the Swami says, we all know, perhaps intuitively, that there are right and proper restrictions for us humans with respect to sexual activity. And most people in most societies will agree more or less on these restrictions. The cultivation of bhakti is rooted in the realization of the higher taste of attraction to the all-attractive Krishna. This enables us to appreciate that the biological function of sexual activity, namely reproduction, having children, points to the necessity of responsibility, the readiness to care 
4. And guide children toward leading fulfilling lives. So, most human societies have a formal arrangement for such commitment. We call it marriage. Many, probably most Christian devotees, are married. And typically, they have children whom they lovingly call for, uh, in all, care for in all their needs. So, the sexual boundary for married couples is to limit their sexual activity to within their marriage based on their mutual love, trust, and respect. In the bhakti tradition, there are three more categories of life situations called ashrams that are recognized as favorable for cultivating bhakti in all three of the alternatives to married life called in Sanskrit krihasta, literally situated in a house, the sexual boundary is narrowed down altogether. Now you're going to ask, and Jake says, yes, indeed, what means narrowed down altogether? (laughs) And the Swami says, well, you probably guessed it. This means complete celibacy, as is traditionally prescribed in many monastic traditions around the world. The yoga of devotion encourages young people to follow this practice for numerous reasons. Not least, it fosters mental clarity as well as physical well-being. It's also recommended for later in life, for married couples as they get older and as their children have grown up. At age 50 or so, it's good to turn one's attention as much as possible away from worldly preoccupations and toward the activities of spiritual progress. Then some men, traditionally not women, may commit themselves to what we might call final vows of dedication to the path of bhakti, what is called sannyasa in Sanskrit. You could translate it literally as full application. As I mentioned, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu took this vow at a very young age. Usually one waits until one is much older. Whoops, I forgot to make a a line break here. Uh, And it goes on like that from there. A little more about the ashramas. And uh, then I speak something about the gurus. And like that. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So that was a little from... I'll stop sharing that. Yes. I hope I didn't read too fast for our translators. And I'm very much aware that for most of you, English is not your first language. So um, all glories to your English competence. (laughs) I'm working on Polish, and uh, one of these lifetimes, (laughs) 
I'm going to be able to speak Polish. Oh, I shouldn't say that. That means I'll be born in Poland again. I, anyway. Um, Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.